Tonight, we're going to go ahead and continue our series uh, about community and what it looks like in the church. Uh, so previously, we studied uh, what a solid church community uh, looks like, right? It's filled with people who listen, uh, who meditate and obey God's Word. Uh, it's also filled with people who are, uh, have a willingness to disciple and be discipled. Uh, we also learned that the true community exists when every member is dedicated to using their gifts to serve the church. Uh, so tonight, we come across the next aspect of uh, how the church can have a true community, and that's to have Christ-likeness, right? to have Christ-likeness. Uh, another term we use is sanctification, right? and that is, uh, so we have Christ-likeness, sanctification, and when we see that word used in Scripture, it basically means uh, to be holy, okay? So then to have a healthy church community that desires and pursues Christ-likeness, or, or, you know, a healthy church community is one that pursues holiness. So to give us a little bit of a guide as to where we're going through tonight, uh, we're going to go over, like, what is sanctification, uh, and then how it's accomplished in the church. Uh, so for our outline, uh, it's going to be two points. Uh, Roman numeral one is the phases of sanctification, uh, the phases of sanctification. Uh, and then Roman numeral two is going to be the practice of sanctification, the practice of sanctification. And so uh, we're going to spend a fair amount of time in the first section um, just talking about sanctification itself uh, because I hope it will be profitable for us to, to really appreciate the magnitude of what it means for us as believers uh, and it will really kind of push us to accomplish God's desire uh, for us in this area. Um, so this is, uh, this is where we'll start, um, the phases of sanctification. And so before we begin, I'll just go ahead and open us up with a word of prayer. Um, dear God, we just uh, thank you again for um, allowing us to gather here tonight. Um, thank you for your word and what it teaches us um, about how we can be uh, a lively church, uh, a lively church that desires to honor uh, and serve and glorify you. And as we um, just learn about these various aspects of you know, what would uh, make this church honoring to you, uh, just uh, convict us through your word. May it change us, uh, may it mold us more into the image of your son. Uh, so we pray all of this in your son's name, amen. All right, uh, so again, uh, Roman numeral one, the phases of sanctification. Uh, so as we mentioned earlier, sanctification uh, can be used to mean more uh, something along the lines of being Christ-like, or more literally, uh, it can mean like being holy, or being in a state of holiness, or being made holy. And as we look into the Bible, uh, the word sanctify and its various forms seem to point to kind of like three different phases or, or three different, um, you can say, processes of sanctification. Uh, and so we'll go over these three. Uh, so the first one is what we'll call positional sanctification, a positional sanctification. Um, the second is progressive sanctification, uh, progressive sanctification. And then the third is perfected sanctification. Okay, so positional, progressive, and perfected. Uh, these are the different phases, you can say, of sanctification that we see. Uh, another way to think about it, uh, you can think about it in terms of time, uh, past, present, future. Okay, uh, so uh, positional sanctification, um, that's what we'll go through first. Um, so... If you want to think of positional sanctification in terms of time, um, you can think about it maybe as a past sanctification, if you like. Um, 
But as its name would imply, this type of sanctification involves uh, a movement or a change uh, in position based on holiness. Okay, so when does this occur? Um, Most would argue that it begins when the Holy Spirit imparts new spiritual life uh, to one who has been previously spiritually dead. Okay, in other words, you can say regeneration, right? And here's an image that we can think about. Uh, if you remember when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus uh, in Genesis chapter, th- I'm sorry, John chapter three, right? And they're talking about, or Nicodemus is, you know, approaching Jesus at night and he's saying, oh, you know, like you must be from God, right? And Jesus responds to him saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then later he says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus here is likely referencing uh, a passage in the Old Testament in Ezekiel when God is saying to Israel, and he says to them there, he says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and bring it about that you walk in my statutes and are careful to follow my ordinances. So I hope you could see the change, right? You're going from unclean to clean, right? From a dead heart to a living heart. In Paul's words, he says that those who are in Christ, they are new creatures, right? The old things have passed away and become new. It's a complete change for those who have faith uh, in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we can also think about uh, what we've been going through uh, on Sunday in Hebrews, right, to give us another picture uh, of what this kind of positional change looks like or this positional sanctification looks like. Um, But before we do, uh, we need to start back in Exodus. So if we go back to Exodus, uh, if you remember, as Moses is leading the people uh, in through the wilderness, or through the wilderness, right, God commands them to build this tabernacle, right, this kind of mobile temple that would be used for worship, and in a sense, provide God and his people uh, a place to meet. And the completion of the tabernacle marks the end of Exodus. Uh, so this is the end in chapter 40, and there God says to Moses, on the first day of the month, you shall set up the tabernacle in the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen off the ark with the veil. And then later on it says, from it Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they entered in the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And when he erected the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court, So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So everything is complete, right? Moses sets up the tabernacle, uh, and this place was meant to be a place of worship and a meeting, but this place now for God and Israel to meet has become inaccessible, right? All the work, right, all the special builders that were used, all the resources, right, the donations and offerings that the people gave uh, to build this tabernacle, right, not, not the temple even, right, just a tabernacle, and no one can even go in, right, not even Moses. And so what comes after Exodus, right? Well, we get the tabernacle, but 
we can't get in. Uh, so what do we do? Uh, well, then God gives the people the, the book of Leviticus, right? It's a whole book dedicated to everything that's necessary from the offerings to the law, right, that all the people and the priests had to follow in order just to get near to God. No one, no one except the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, right? And that was just one time of year to make atonement for the people. Right? Everyone else, all the people, all the, all the priests, right? For every day except for one, even the high priest, right? The best they could do was just to be on the outside, right? And you think about from that point, right, the centuries and the centuries Right, of the continual flow of blood from all the bulls and the goats and the sheep, uh, even birds, all that, right, just so that they could be on the outside. Right. But if you remember from this past Sunday's message, right, Jesus is a better high priest, right, with a better ministry. Um, so now if we fast forward into Hebrews a little bit and we look at Hebrews chapter 9, in chapter 9 it says there, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things having come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then move down to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made by hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that, uh, that is not his own. So you see, Jesus enters the holy place to make his sacrifice, and it's not going into the holy of holies of the tabernacle, right? That's just a copy of the true holy place, right? The actual presence and the dwelling of God. When we think about that, or, and we know that the innermost part of the tabernacle or the temple, you know, even though it is made by human hands, right, it's still holy, right? Again, it's so holy that the high priest could only go in once a year, right? And if he didn't follow, right, all the right rules and regulations pertaining to what's required to enter into the holy of holies, right? then he would pretty much immediately die. Right? But that, even as holy as that was, right, it was still, as Hebrew says, it's still just a copy. Right? It's just a copy. Yet Jesus, as the better high priest, he intercedes by entering into heaven itself, right, into the very presence of God. And on top of that, right, the high priest needed to offer the blood of the animals right, every day, every year. And even that, Right, Hebrew says, right, only sanctifies the outside, the flesh. Right? I mean, it's it's kind of like it's kind of like you're in the matrix, right? You have the real high priest offering up real blood, right, of real animals in a real building, 
And then once a year, right, they go in to make atonement in a place that's actually, in fact, truly holy, but the place is just an actual copy of the holy place, right? The actual place, the real place, is in heaven, not of this creation where none of us can see, right? It's the actual holy place where God dwells, where Jesus is able to make the true sacrifice, the one that actually covers all of our sin. I mean, it's, you know, what's real is real, but it's, you know, not really real, right? It's just a copy of what's real. And what's actually real, right, is what we can't see because it's happening in heaven, right? And that's why only Jesus Christ, right, can be the true high priest and the true sacrifice for us, you know? But then the author of Hebrews goes on. In chapter 10, he says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all time. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering... He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, right? That's the change in position, right? From being unclean to sanctified, right? To be made forever holy. But you also look and you see where that brings us, and that's another change, another change in position uh, down in verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now we can enter the holy place, or as the author of of Hebrew puts it earlier in chapter four, right? The throne of grace, right? Not just the copy, right? Not just going inside of a tent, not even going into the holy of holies, right? We don't need it anymore, right? The veil was torn and we can follow Christ directly to God, right? This drawing near for us, it isn't just following the laws and making sacrifices just so that we can be looking in from the outside, right? This near is being brought from the outside into the very presence of God. And to that, we can draw near, he says, with confidence, right? No veil, no high priest, no holy of holies, right? Just us near to God. See, back in those days, right, no one would ever dare approach a king, right? Entering into the throne or the room of the king without being summoned would be punishable, it would almost guarantee death, right? No one would dare, right? No one except for maybe his children, right? His children would know him as king, but they would also know him as father, right? So Paul says, right, for, those, for all those who are being led by the Spirit are sons of God. If you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And because of Christ, 
we can approach the throne of the king of creation, right, the God of this universe, and you can call him Father. And not only that, seated next to him is his son, right, who is your savior, whom you can also call brother. Right, Hebrews chapter 2, um, he says earlier, he says in verse 11, for those he, for both he who sanctifies, right, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Right, you watch. Right, the next time you see a child approach his father, right, there's no, there's no anxiousness, there's no hesitation. Right, and that's, that's us now. Right? That's us in Christ. That's our new position. Right? We are now made holy, holy enough that God looks upon us as his children, as his own children, right? just like his own son. Right? And that's the change in position that we have. That's our sanctification. Right? Through Jesus Christ, we have been made holy. And because we are made holy, this is what we get. Now, the next phase of sanctification is probably one that we're more familiar with, right? The one we usually tend to focus on uh, because it kind of affects how we live, you know, kind of on a daily basis, uh, and that's progressive sanctification, okay? Progressive sanctification. The Westminster Shorter Catechism offers the following definition of progressive sanctification, uh, and there it defines it as sanctification, as the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So this is um, the next phase of sanctification, and that's progressive sanctification. Right? So whereas the part of positional sanctification is really wholly the work of God, right? progressive sanctification Though through the Spirit's working in us, right, we also hold responsibility to conform ourselves into the image of God. And we won't spend too much time here um, because we'll talk about it in our, our, late, our later section. Um, but as Paul tells us in Romans, right, even consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. All right, so that... So because of our position in Christ, right, we are no longer dead in our sins, right? Before salvation or regeneration, you know, we were powerless against sin. But with a new life in Christ, right, we have been enabled to put sin aside or, as John Owen puts it, right, to mortify the sin in our life. Now, Colossians chapter 3, uh, Paul instructs us, right, to keep thinking of the things above, Right, to not think of the things of this earth because our lives are hidden in with Christ. Right, so what does that mean to be hidden with Christ? Right, we're united with him. Right, our eternity is secure because of him. And then also, right, the world doesn't understand right, this new life that we have. But because of our sin, 
or, but because of this, our, our new life that's hidden in Christ, right? Our earthly bodies need to put sin to death, right? We need to, as he says, lay aside the old practices of the old self and instead, right, Paul says, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Right? This is the type of transformation that believers must undergo as part of the new life in Christ. And we should be driven to conform ourselves into this new image, right? A more proper and more accurate image of our creator. And Paul says in um, 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, but we all un with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So with nothing obstructing our view of Christ anymore and His glory, right, we are gradually made more and more into His image. Right? We continue to grow into that more accurate picture of holiness, right? closer and closer until we reach the end. Right? And that end, right, that's the last phase of sanctification. Right? This is uh, the third and last phase. Right? It's perfected sanctification, perfected sanctification. This, and this is right, future, future sanctification in terms of time. Since we are always battling and for us it feels like sometimes often falling into sin, right, our sanctification really won't be fully completed or realized in this life. Right? But once we pass from this life to the next Right, we move into this final stage of sanctification, or we also call it glorification. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 48 and 49, um, Paul says, is, As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. And as the heavenly, also, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as, we, just as we have been born the image of the earthly, we also have bear the image of the heavenly. And so this future glorification or this perfected sanctification, uh, it's generally, uh, you, can be, you can consider it like a, a two-step process. Um, the first is where our soul will be with the Lord, as Paul alludes to in um, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.8 and Philippians 1.23 and 24, right? He says there, you know, he, right, to be absent from the body is to be uh, at home with the Lord and in the Philippians passage, he, he was talking to the Philippians about how much he desires to be uh, with Christ, uh, but he needs to remain in the flesh, right, for the sake of the Philippians, right? But the glorification um, that we receive from Jesus isn't just the one that includes a spirit, but includes the body as well, right? For both the body and the spirit have been captured by Christ at our redemption. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, he says that our citizenship is in heaven for which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of his power that he has even subject to all things to himself. And as it says in 1 Corinthians 15, right, our perishable bodies will be replaced with the imperishable thus completing our sanctification. So, I hope that going through, right, these different kind of phases of uh, sanctification, right, 
can help us better appreciate not just the role of sanct- the sanctification process and how it fits into God's overall redemptive story, um, but really what a privilege it is that God has called us for this purpose, right? That God has called us to be holy. So then, what are some ways that we can practice sanctification? And this is kind of our second and our last section, right? So this is the practice of sanctification. Now, to say that there are countless passages in the Bible um, that tell believers how to be sanctified might be kind of a hyperbole, um, but we know that there's a lot, right? There's, um, just for, to name a few, right, we've went through a couple of these, Colossians 3, Romans 6 and 7, Romans 12, Galatians 5, right? And I'm sure there's many more that you can think of. Um, but just a couple for tonight uh, that help us kind of get a view of how we can practice sanctification. Okay, one that's kind of general and then the one that's uh, more specific. Um, but from what we know in Jesus' high priestly prayer, uh, remember this is just when he's taken just before he's uh, taken into custody, right? He was praying for his disciples, right? Not just his current disciples, but all those who would come to believe in him through their ministry, right, including us, right? And one of his desires was for them and his disciples and subsequently for us, right, his desire was for our sanctification. Uh, In John chapter 17, verse 14, he says, and I give them your word as he's praying to God, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then verse 17, it says, sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. All right, so in order to be sanctified or in order to grow in sanctification, right, we must have the truth, right? Jesus says, God's word is truth, right? And especially in today's age where the truth is always changing, and the truth becomes subjective. And I hope we can encourage one another, right, not to be tempted or swayed by anything that doesn't come from Scripture. I mean, the world will tell you, right, the world will tell you what you need in order to be happy, right, what you need in order to be successful, right? The world will tell you what it means to be accepting, right, what it means to have justice, The world will tell you what it means to be part of a community. And it's true that there are some elements, right, that seem good or at the very least, it's kind of like morally neutral. Um, But when you start giving attention or you start paying heed to the world, soon you will hear the whispers, right? Did God really say, right? The world will tell you, right? Is, Is that what it really says? Is that what the Bible really says, right? Did God really say that? But instead, uh, consider this. Consider what God says in Isaiah chapter 40. He says, the grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, the people are indeed grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And he says, the word of our God stands forever. So you don't have to worry about the different trends or philosophies of man, right? None of that will last, right? But instead, 
bring yourself into the Word of God, right? Read it, meditate on it, memorize it, apply it, right? And you will use it to help build what truly should be a church community. And we do that by sharing the Word with one another, right? We ask others, you know, what we're learning, right? We ask, what is it that we're reading, right? How is it helping, right? Don't be afraid to ask and don't be afraid to share. Right? Prayer group, small group time, right? Refreshment time, right? When you guys are hanging out um, after service, right? Ask each other these things, right? Talk about the message, discuss it with one another, right? I am sure that you will be blessed and I'm sure that you will be edified and that you will also be edifying others. Uh, the second way we can practice our sanctification uh, is by fleeing sin, by fleeing sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 tells us, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, for God has not called us for impurity, but in sanctification. Therefore, one another, therefore, the one who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Right? Paul says that our sanctification is God's will. Right? And in this specific passage, right, he's addressing the sin of sexual immorality. Right? But God's desire for our holiness includes not just fleeing from this sin, but any other sin, right? Just as Paul says in Romans 6. He's, again, we've read it a little earlier, right? Don't let, or therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, Right? And while our souls and our mortal are housed in these mortal bodies, we understand again, right, that we are going to fall into temptation, right? It's an unfortunate reality of our Christian life, right? But it's still not an excuse for sin. And of course, our fight against sin can be discouraging, right? And it can be hard, right? But it will never be too hard, right? It will never be too hard. And you might feel discouraged and you might feel ashamed, Right? But I hope that you will never feel defeated. Right? Because a true believer is dead to sin, as God has said. Right? And God has given us everything that we need right, to put sin to death. Right? He's given us his word. We see that in Psalm 19. Right? He's given us his spirit who is at work sanctifying us. That's what First Peter says. He's given us his son who can sympathize with us as one tempted by him, tempted himself, but yet without sin, and who is able to offer mercy and grace in time of need, as it says in Hebrews 4. And he, God also provides us a way of escape from every temptation, as he says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And there, God is faithful, and he will not allow you be, to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation, he will... Provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Right? And on top of all of that, 
Right? God has given us each other. Right? God has also given us each other. Right? Proverbs 27.10 says, Do not forsake your friend or your father's friend, and do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away. And don't forsake your friends. Right? We don't forsake each other. In Galatians 6, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such in one in a spirit of gentleness, each looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. As a church, we sanctify each other by bearing each other's burdens, and that would include our struggles with sin. I mean, as a church, we need to turn to the body Right? We can turn to each other in our times of weakness and in our times of failures. Right? We also need to be ones who encourage each other. Right? We can encourage each other in our triumphs. Right? How encouraging is it right, when you hear of someone that you know who you know, maybe struggles with the same sin you do, uh, and they tell you how they were able to flee temptation. Right? Doesn't that encourage you? Doesn't that give you strength to want to do the same? Right? And I know that you know, there might be some you know, who are struggling with, you know, we, we all struggle with sin, uh, and there are some that may be struggling with certain sins that may seem just really difficult to, to get over, right? Um, maybe it's a sin similar to what Paul is speaking of in, in 1 Thessalonians, or maybe it's something else. Right? And it's hard, right? and it's disheartening. But understand right, that you owe it to the church and you owe it to Christ to put that sin to death. Right? And if you're brave enough and uh, you're able to share it with someone around you, right, then we owe it to you like we owe it to Christ to do everything we can to help you. Right? And that's how we can build a true church community. Right, so before we close, I uh, hope that you know you'll consider uh, what it means to be part of a church. Right, we want to be careful that we don't begin to incorporate or import the world's influences or its ideologies into the church. Right, because the world doesn't get to decide what the church is like. Right, you see, when the world talks about community. Right, they're usually talking about a place where you know, people can feel like they belong, right? a place where people share the same interests or opinions. Right? And it may sound good at first, you know, and generally it's probably not a bad thing, um, but you know, it potentially can be dangerous. Right? Uh, people may come into the church looking for community, right? or if they're maybe struggling at a church, um, because they can't find it, right? They can't find community. But sometimes, right, sometimes, uh, that community they want is based on more earthly or temporal connections, right? They want to build or they want to be around people who have the same interests, right? Maybe they want to find people who play the same sports or play the same games, people who like to do the same things, right? And having those things is fine. Right? But the church does not exist to be social. Right? The church doesn't exist to be social. It exists to be spiritual. Right? So perhaps when you have time, think for a moment. Right? Think about those in this church 
or think about those, you know, who you're close to, right? or even just the church in general, right? And consider, you know, if these relationships, are they mutually sanctifying or are they mostly social, right? Because it's very easy, even in the church, right, to want to be around people that are like you, right? I mean, it's just natural, right? But the true church community, it's not just people, right? It shouldn't be filled with people that look like you, right? The church community should be filled with people that look like Christ. Okay, so I hope that you can, um, we can all consider these things. Uh, and, you know, you know, the church is, it's, it's a special place for us, right? It's a special place for believers, um, you know, but it's a special place for God too. Uh, so I hope that, you know, we can consider these things as we, you know, meditate on his word. All right, so let's pray. Uh, dear God, again, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through your son, we can call you father and we can call him brother. Uh, we thank you that you've given us this church whereby through your Holy Spirit, all of us with each other, we can grow in the likeness of your son. And whatever the cost, uh, whatever it takes for us to uh, become more like you, uh, help us understand it, help us pay it, because we know that you are worth it because your church is worth it, because we know you love us, you love this church, you purchased us, you redeemed us, so that we don't live like the world, we live like you. Uh, and so we just pray for this evening, and we pray for the rest of our time uh, in this church, that you would just continue to build us up uh, in sanctification so that we can be honoring to you. Uh, in your son's name we pray, amen.